Well, if you guys don't know who I am, uh, I'm Rory, and uh, by God's grace, I'm here to serve, <laughs> here to serve you guys. And um, it's been so wonderful to be in Prineville for the last, I guess, three weeks now, and we're just loving being back in a small town and being back on this side of the mountains. You know, all of the mildew has dried up from between my fingers, and the webs have de-evolved off, so um, <laughs> we're in good shape now, but, um, but just loving Prineville, and it's been about a week and a half that Ryan and I have just spent hours and, and hours just talking church stuff, and I've just been so blessed to just get to sit under him this month. I mean, I was talking with Kevin the other day, and just how, how it's just the Lord that um, we got this month of transition together. You know, I don't, I've never even heard of that before. Um, with the transition to a new pastor. And so um, I've been loving it and loving Ryan and learning so much. And so I am so glad to be here. And it's just been great to get to meet you guys. And I look forward to meeting all of you and, and uh, spending, spending time with all of you. So, um, so today we're in 2 Samuel chapter 20. And uh, let's go ahead and pray. Lord, it's so good to just come in the middle of the week and, and fellowship and just even enjoy a barbecue together and, and truly a family here, Lord. And I just pray that you would continue to knit our hearts together. I just think that you say that a, a three-fold or a three-stranded cord is not easily broken. And so, Lord, just knit our hearts together, Lord. And today as we come to just feast from your word, we just pray that you would bring it tonight, Lord. You'd bring the message. And you know each person that's in this room, and, and Lord, I know that you wanted them here tonight for this message. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would just touch our hearts, change us. Lord, where we're hard, I just pray that you'd soften us. Lord, where there's sin in our lives and, and you've been gently convicting us for so long to give it up to you. I pray that tonight would be the night that you have victory in our hearts and that we give it up, Lord. Lord, where sin has destroyed our lives and, and has left a path like a tornado uh, behind us, Lord, we just pray that you would come tonight and bring healing in our lives and in our hearts, Lord. We are just sitting at the feet of Jesus tonight and just and can't wait to hear from you. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I just confess to you guys my weakness being here, you know, uh, especially tonight in 2 Samuel 20. Uh, I don't know many pastors that their first study to their church is 2 Samuel 20, but um, may not have been like my first choice, you know, but this is where we fall in tonight. And so my first time teaching through 2 Samuel, or perhaps I should say it's my first time teaching through the last... Uh, four chapters of Second Samuel. Uh, so I'm just coming in weakness and learning so much. Uh, today was a great day of studying for me, just, just devouring and learning just even some little things that are so good. So uh, if you're taking notes tonight, I want you to write down that the key truth that's illustrated in Second Samuel is the same truth that's shown to us in Deuteronomy. And that truth is that Obedience brings blessing, but disobedience brings judgment. Think you can remember that? Obedience brings, 
brings blessing. And disobedience brings judgment. Galatians chapter 6 verse 7 and 8 say, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows of the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. So in obedience, there's tremendous blessing. And man, I've got a two-year-old little boy, Russell. And I love it when he obeys. I mean, it's like, it's something I like, you know? I like it when you obey. But when you disobey, there's judgment. And I'll leave it at that. But, you know, nice, loving, correction, chastening perhaps would be the right word. Maybe not judgment. But if you're going to disobey the word of God and sow to the flesh, then man, you're going to reap corruption. But if you're obedient to the word of God and you sow things of your life, your energies and, and your, your money and your time and, and your obedience uh, to the spirit, then you're going to reap everlasting life. And so it's so key to think of that as you read through 2 Samuel and you read through the life of David, particularly, particularly the end part of David's life. Just remember that little rule, that little theme of 2 Samuel. Um, a, sip, a simple outline of 2 Samuel shows the following. And, and write this down if you're taking notes. Just a little simple three-part outline. Um, in chapters 1 through 10 of 2 Samuel, we see the triumphs of David. Okay, the triumphs of David. So out of 20, uh, let me think here, 26, 24 chapters, sorry, I looked at that 26. Out of the 24 chapters of 2 Samuel, the first 10 chapters are victories in David's life. Militarily, he's a conqueror. He's the man, you know. Nations will say his name, you know. Uh, nationally and politically, uh, David's a conqueror. You know, through, um, through Abner, he's able to link Israel and Judah together for a time. And so politically and nationally, he's, he's a conqueror. Spiritually, he's a conqueror. The ark is brought back to Jerusalem. And, and Jerusalem is set up as a worship headquarters of the nation. And, and there's neat stuff going on. It's an exciting 10 chapters to read. If you, if you haven't just read through the first 10 chapters of 2 Samuel, it's a fun 10 chapters to read. But then the second part of our outline is one chapter. One chapter, chapter 11. And there in chapter 11, we see the transgression of David. We see 10 chapters of victory and conquering and, and political victory and, and things that you never think would happen between Israel and Judah happening. You never think you'd see the ark come back and it comes back and victory. Then one chapter later, sin. Sin. And it's there in chapter 11, it, it's the pivotal chapter of the book where it goes from triumph and victory and, and greatness. And then chapter 11 spins David on his heels. It's the turning point of the book when David commits adultery with Bathsheba. 
You know, you can practically tell by the first verse of chapter 11 that something bad is going to (laughs) happen. You know, it sets it up really well that David stayed at home when all of the other kings went out to battle. David stayed at home and you know that's not going to be good. You know, David should have gone out to battle with everybody else, but he stayed at home and and you all know the story of him seeing Bathsheba taking a bath out on her porch and he can't look away and, and falls into sin and has her come and, and commits sin, finds out she's married, uh, finds out that she's pregnant. Not only is she married, she's married to one of his mighty men of valor. And so he tries to trick her husband Uriah to to have relations with her and make her think he got her pregnant and, and he wouldn't do it because he's a loyal friend. And, you know, it's just a soap opera, the whole chapter, you know, it's nothing good. And, um, and it comes to the point where David thinks the only way I'm going to get myself out of this without anybody knowing is to just kill Uriah. Then nobody has to know. And, um, and so he does, he sets up a, a scheme and murders Uriah. And so in one chapter from victory to uh, to the opposite. Uh, and we see the consequences for the rest of the book of David's sin. And so chapters 12 through 24, the, after chapter 11, 12 through 24, the troubles of David and the disobedience of the king in chapter 11 causes all sorts of chastisement upon David's life and corrections and confusion and the sin that he committed with uh, committing adultery and, and murdering Uriah just leads to havoc, not only for David himself, as we're going to see later tonight, but for his entire family, for the entire nation, for generations and generations to come. It didn't just affect David. And so it goes from victories and successes and triumphs in David's life to troubles throughout the rest of 2 Samuel. And so here we are finishing up 2 Samuel and just seeing kind of just the, it's sad to see the effects of sin. And because of that, the sword always remains in his house. And so if you can remember the last four chapters that that Ryan has been teaching, uh, just to let you know where we're at in chapter 20, in the last four chapters, David's son Absalom led a coup against David into Jerusalem, and he tried to take over his dad's kingdom. And uh, somebody fa- uh, found out about it and ran ahead and told David what was happening, and so David was able to escape out the eastern side of Jerusalem and run from Absalom and his army. And David knew that, that Absalom's army was so much stronger And so he just said, let's just get out of Dodge, you know, better to get out than all of us perish. And so him and his pretty much the whole city just get out and leave while Absalom and his army come to take over. But David in his wisdom left some spies in Jerusalem as he as he fled. And a couple of those spies were Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. They stayed with the the ark back in Jerusalem And Zadok's two sons, Jonathan and Ahimaaz, and forgive me for my horrible butchering of these Old Testament names. I I always thought I was good at these types of names, you know, if you're like in a Bible study and someone's reading, you're like correcting them. Oh, it's Ahimaaz, you know, and now I'm horrible at it. So (laughs) totally humbled here. Uh, So Jonathan and Ahimaaz stay behind to be spies as well as 
um, David's close friend and counselor, Hushai. So, um, so Absalom came into the city and kind of let these, he didn't realize they were spies. They did a great job of being spies, obviously. I think that's what a spy does, is he doesn't let people know that they're spies. And, uh, and so he lets them remain, and some of them are part of his council. And Absalom says, hey, you know, let's go attack David. And a long story short, these spies go and tell David the attack plan. And so David was ready for it. And he ended up counterattacking and completely thwarting Absalom's army's plans and really kicking their heinies in battle. And actually it says that the people of Israel were overthrown before the servants of David and a great slaughter of 20,000 took place there that day. For the battle there was scattered over the face of the whole countryside and the woods devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. And so some supernatural help there, you know, as, as, as David was really outnumbered, the Lord brought the victory over Absalom that day. But as Absalom's army is getting defeated, Absalom, if you remember, had, he was a gorgeous man. I don't know if you can even say those two words together, but uh, good looking guy. Uh, but one thing about him was the dude had some hair. And if you waited, it was like five pounds of hair. He, he'd only cut his hair once a year and five pounds of hair. And so before he went out to battle, he didn't shave it off. And he's riding his mule through the forest and it catches on the trees and sucks him off his mule. And he's just dangling there like, mama, you know. And, uh, and David had said, hey, if you find my son Absalom on the battlefield, deal kindly with him. And when they found him... Uh, the people that found him wouldn't kill him because they remembered David's words. But Absalom, or excuse me, Joab said, why don't you kill the guy? And grabbed three spears and thrust them through Absalom's heart and killed Absalom, David's son. And so this brings us to uh, last week's study. When David found out that Absalom had been killed, he cried out and he mourned. And really, man, if you've ever lost somebody close to you, uh, the mourning is, it's indescribable. I mean, you'll, you'll be totally fine and then fall down on your face, just completely sobbing. And so can definitely sympathize with David a little bit uh, in, in his pain there in chapter 19. But he's sobbing and sobbing. And Joab, you know, the guy that just killed his son, says, David, stand up, man. You know, is this how you look like in your victories? You know, all these people just fought for you and, and were dying for you. And, and we won and you're sobbing because your enemy died. Stand up, act like a man, get back over there and, and let's party in victory, you know. And so um, after some time went by, the Israelites said, all right, you know, we're done rebelling. Bring David back into Jerusalem as our king. We're ready for him. And if you remember last week's study, David and, and the, the Judeans and his army started coming back into the city. And as they started coming back into Jerusalem, actually it wasn't quite Jerusalem, it was the Jordan River, which is, I don't know, I can't remember, but probably about 30 miles from Jerusalem. As they're crossing the Jordan River, you know, all sorts of people who were enemies of David came back to David and said, welcome home, buddy. It's good to have you back. By the way, you know, when I was throwing rocks and stuff at you and you were leaving the city, forgive me. I don't know what I was thinking, but I'm really glad you're back, you know, and David totally gracious and merciful. Just like, I understand, you know, I forgive you. And it was a really great homecoming until they started crossing the river Jordan, coming back towards Jerusalem on a ferry. I don't remember if there was a ferry when they were fleeing, but I don't think there was, but they're coming back on a ferry. 
And um, a boat type, you know, that would haul people. I know you guys are wondering, Tinkerbell, what the? But, um, sorry, it's a high school pastor in me, kind of comes out a little bit. But um, as they're going across the river on the ferry, here come the Israelites to greet David. And immediately the Israelites are furious that Judah is escorting David back into Jerusalem. Well, of course they're escorting David back in Jerusalem. They were with him the whole time. And so they get very angry that, well, we're the ones that invited David to come back into the city. It was our idea, and there's ten of us tribes, and there's only two of you. And, you know, really, we should be the ones. And this argument starts. And so that's kind of what happens here uh, in chapter 20. This is where we're at. Uh, there's a, a fierce argument between Judah and Israel about who should get to bring David back uh, to, his, to his throne in Israel. And uh, fierce words were spoken. In fact, the last verse of chapter 19 says um, that the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. And so that's what brings us into chapter 20. And there happened to be there a rebel whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And he blew a trumpet and said, we have no share in David, nor do we have inheritance in the son of Jesse, every man to his tents, O Israel. And so there was this argument that took place, and in no way do we see David standing up and saying, okay guys, quit fighting. You know, quit fighting, let's, let's just be friends now, okay? I'm coming back, I want to be just as much your king Israel as I want to be Judah's king. Can't we all just get along, you know, and, and let's just go back. I love you guys, Israel, I love you, and I love Judah, and I, I don't love one more than the other. Come on, let's just put all these things behind us, you know, but in no place do you see David trying to like bring peace. Maybe he kind of likes it, you know, I think we like it when someone's fighting over us. <laughs> Go ahead, fight, you know, I've actually never had that happen. No one's really fought over me, but, um, but, um, and so finally, because, because David doesn't say anything, Sheba just gets fed up with it and says, all right, you know, let's just rebel again and let's get out of here. You know, David doesn't love us. We've got no portion in David's kingdom. And so let's just get out of here. And so he kind of calls the people to succession. And it's interesting, you know, Israel is a very fickle nation. You know, one minute they're declaring David to be their king and come back over the, wait, is that Judah over there? How dare you? You know, I hate you. I hate you, David. Let's get out of here. You know, it's like, whoa, within two minutes of being reunited with David, we're out of here, you know? And, um, Maybe we have family members like that. I don't know, but probably not. Um, But man, doesn't that sound familiar though? Remember in Mark chapter 11, when Jesus came into Jerusalem and everyone was so excited, even wrote a little song, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna, Hosanna. You know, they were singing that. I think that's kind of the tune and how it went. And they were so happy. And within a week, what are they saying? crucify him, crucify him, kill him, you know? And so, man, it's, there's a reason that David is a picture of Jesus, you know? Um, there's definitely some, some similarities there. And so uh, the fickleness of Israel led by Sheba. And so every man, verse two of Israel, deserted David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri, but the men of Judah from the Jordan as far as Jerusalem remained loyal to their king. Now David came to his house at Jerusalem, 
And the king took the ten women, his concubines, who he had left to keep the house, and put them in seclusion and supported them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up to the day of their death, living in um, widowhood. Now, David left these ten concubines in Jerusalem to keep his house in order when he fled as Absalom was coming into the city. And when Absalom came into the city, naturally one of the first places he'd probably go is his father's house, whom he's conquering. And uh, he finds these uh, ten women there, and he's counseled by uh, one of David's old good buddies and counselors, Ahithophel, to do the following. Flip back to, to chapter 16 and read verse 20 through 23 with me. Absalom said to Ahithophel, give advice as to what we should do. And Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines whom he's left to keep the house and all Israel will hear that you are abhorred by your father Then the hands of all those who are with you will be strong. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the top of the house, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one had inquired at the oracle of God. So was all the advice of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom." And so it's a really sad situation with these concubines, you know. Um, You know, I I just think of them as people, you know, people who were left behind to keep the house and just and and treated really like animals by uh, by Absalom. But there's an interesting tie between David's sin clear back in chapter 11 with Bathsheba and with Ahithophel here in verse 16, who we read of now. Maybe Ryan told you this. I'm sure he did in some sense. But Ahithophel, does anybody know? Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather. Okay? So Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather. Her dad, Bathsheba's father, was Eliam, Ahithophel's son. Okay? And Eliam, Bathsheba's dad, was a mighty man of valor. Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, was also a mighty man of valor. So imagine if you, you married, you know, um, your wife and, you know, you were in the special forces, the United States special forces, and you married your wife and uh, your wife's dad was like the general of the special forces. You know, that's kind of what Uriah and, El- um, oh, these darn Old Testament names, Eliam, um, that's kind of their relationships. And so imagine um, Ahithophel's displeasure, to say the least, when he finds out that the king had committed adultery with his granddaughter and then murdered his grandson-in-law. You know, uh, he probably wasn't like, that's David, you know, ever since he was a teenager, he was always, you know, egging cars and teeping houses and committing adultery with people and murdering their husbands, you know, and you know, definitely not too happy with what was going on there. And uh, probably angry that, that David disgraced his granddaughter's family, you know, and he probably loved his, his grandson-in-law. I know I have a great relationship with my grandfather-in-law, 
And uh, that's a long name title for somebody. But, um, and so here we see Ahithophel siding with Absalom uh, during this coup and doing everything with his, within his power to utterly destroy David and David's image, just like David destroyed Bathsheba's image and her family um, back in chapter 11. And so a sad thing is that when Absalom uh, chose another man's counsel over Ahithophel's counsel, uh, Ahithophel went home, set his affairs in order, and hung himself. And so just tragic ending to Ahithophel's life, who was once a, you know, there were some, there were some beautiful times, I'm sure, in Ahithophel's life and in his relationship with David. And so I get into all of that from verse 3. Uh, because of this. What a lesson this is for us that our sin doesn't just affect us. It doesn't just affect us. And so often when we're tempted and we decide to, to go for that sin, we're only thinking about ourselves. We're only thinking about the pleasure that we're going to get or the feeling that we're going to get or the rush that we're going to get or the way that we're going to look or the applause that we're going to get. And we're only thinking about ourselves and not thinking about anybody else. We're not thinking about our wives or our husbands. We're not thinking about our family. We're not thinking about our extended family. And I guarantee David wasn't thinking about his extended, extended family who eventually was going to be killed by the sword because of his sin in chapter 11. Our sin doesn't just stop with us, but it affects everyone around us, uh, family, friends, nations, churches, communities, even little sins, what we would call minor acts of disobedience. We can see this in Numbers chapter 16, if you'll flip over there. You know, I love doing a survey of numbers, specifically, you know, looking at how often the children of Israel would murmur and grumble and complain against Moses. And we actually see in the word that they weren't complaining about Moses' leadership, but they were complaining against God when they would murmur against Moses. And so it's just crazy how the Lord would provide miraculously, cross the Red Sea, you know, the Red Sea opens and they run through and, and then here comes Pharaoh's army and the Red Sea crashes down on them and everyone's all, woohoo! And then two seconds later, they're, Lord, how could you take us out of Egypt? It was so great there, you know, and then we're hungry. And so he provides manna from heaven, angels, food, you know, and they eat that. And then a week later, this is disgusting. What do you call this stuff? You know, we want meat. Oh, I remember in Egypt when we had so much meat, you know, and the Lord's like, I'll give you meat. The meat's going to be, meat's going to be coming out your nostrils, you know, and it did. Um, and it was not a pleasant sight. And so the complaining and the murmuring, just sorry, but it is a nice picture. They just murmured and complained and they wouldn't learn. I mean, one chapter they're complaining. The next chapter they're complaining. And they're judged for their complaining. The next chapter they're complaining. And they're judged for their complaining. Oh gosh. And then by chapter 16, Korah gets the great idea that maybe we should complain against Moses. Yeah, let's do that. And there in chapter 16, Korah rebelled against Moses and Aaron with 250 leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congre congregation. And it says they were men of renown. Imagine the intimidation that that must have been for Moses. 
Moses. And, um, and Korah said in verse 3 there, You take too much upon yourselves, for all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? And as they were complaining, the Lord's anger burned against Korah and Dathan and Abiram and the others. But Moses, man, what an amazing guy with amazing character. He and Aaron pled with the Lord to spare the congregation and to not wipe them out. The Lord says, okay, but get away from Korah, Dathan and Abiram's tents because judgment is coming. And so if you look there in verse 25 through 35, in Numbers 16, it says, Then Moses rose and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart now from the tents of these wicked men. Touch nothing of theirs, lest you be consumed in all their sins. And so they got away from around the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram, underline this, remember this. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents with their wives, their sons, and their little children. And Moses said, By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, for I have not done them out of my own will. If these men die naturally, like all men die, or if they're visited by the common fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates a new thing, And the earth opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them. And they go down alive into the pit. Then you will understand that these men have rejected the Lord. Now it came to pass as he finished speaking all these words that the ground split apart underneath them. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the men with Korah and all their goods. So they and all those with them went down alive into the pit. The earth closed over them and they perished from among the assembly. Then all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, lest the earth swallow us up also. And a fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering incense. You think if Korah could have done it all over again, he would have done it all over again? I mean, I, I honestly am grieved when I read verse 27. You know, everyone's like, get away from their tents. And there's like a stampede of people running and they just like come to the door of the tent and their little kids with them and the poodle and all their, and they're like, what's everybody doing, you know, and hole in the ground, you know, but I guarantee that Cora, if you could talk to him today would say, think about others. All I wanted was glory. I mean, who did Moses think he was? I mean, we're all holy men. Can't we do some leading here, you know? And just tragic, tragic. A similar thing happened to Achan when he sinned. Flip over to Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7. In Joshua 6, just before the walls of Jericho fell down, the Lord instructed every living thing in Jericho to be destroyed except for Rahab and her house, because they hid the spies that went in. And in Joshua 6, verse 18 and 19, it says, And you, by all means, abstain from the accursed things. I mean, when you do a history study on the Jerichoans, I guess you would call them, or Jerichites, or who knows, uh, wicked, wicked people who cared nothing about life, and they'd sacrifice their babies to their gods and 
Oh, horrible, horrible stuff. Makes Hitler look like a saint. And, um, and so every living thing, donkeys, everything, men, women, children were to be destroyed. And the, the articles of, of gold and things like that were to be put into the Lord's treasury. There in verses 18 through 19. Within verse 1 of chapter 7, it says, But the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed things. And for Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed things. So the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. And so right after that, Joshua, they just had a victory in Jericho. And it's not quite known that, that um, Achan had taken some of these accursed things uh, that he wasn't supposed to take. And so they go from that battle right over to another battle against Ai. And as they go and attack Ai, they lose miserably. I mean, they just get beat. And it says that the hearts of the men were made like water. I mean, they were just terrified. Because they got beat so bad. And after a, a victory like Jericho, the Lord is, is for us. Who can be against us? And then little old Ai, you know, and we get beat by them. And, um, and so uh, the Lord tells Joshua the reason that they lost because there was sin in the camp. And the Lord told Joshua to go to such and such a tribe and he was going to show him which tribe to go to. And then within that tribe, go to such and such a house and from such and such a house to the family. And you'll find out who the one is that took of the accursed things. And so there it was in verse 18 of chapter 7 that uh, he brought his household man by man. And Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah was taken. Now Joshua said to Achan, my son, I beg you. Give glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession to him and tell me now what you've done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered and said uh, to Joshua, Indeed, I've sinned against the Lord God of Israel and this is what I've done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. And there they, ate, there they are, hidden in the earth, in the midst of my tent, with the silver under it. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and there it was, hidden in his tent, with the silver under it. And they took them from the midst of the tent, brought them to Joshua and to the children of Israel, and laid them out before the Lord. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the garment, the wedge of gold, his sons, his daughters... His oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that he had. And they brought them to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. So all Israel stoned him with stones. And they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. Then they raised over him a great heap of stones, still there to this day. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of that place had been called the Valley of Achor to this day. And I'll tell you, I bet if Achan could do it all over again, if he realized that his little sin, I mean, really, let's, let's lay out sins on the worst to the least. And I took a Babylonian garment that I liked and a wedge looked like a piece of cheese of gold. I mean, I like cheese. I like gold. Couldn't get much better. And I took those things and I hid it under my tent and 
I thought, you know, in maybe 10 years, people will forget about Jericho and I can wear that garment around and cruise around with that wedge of, you know. But it cost me. It cost me my sons and my daughters and everything I owned. And it's crazy. Today, as I was studying this, uh, right when I was at this part in my study, Russell came home. Lindsay and Russell came home. And Russell came running back into the bedroom where I was studying. And he jumped up in my chair and he, you know, got up on my lap and he put his hands on my cheeks, you know, and we just kind of started wrestling. And immediately I began thinking, Rory, your sin could cost you this. And your sin could cost you your wife and your family. Just like it cost Achan his sons and his daughters, his family, the same type of love that I have for Russell, he had for his family, but he never knew that his sin was going to cost him that. And it's been said that sin will take you where you never thought you'd go. It'll keep you longer than you ever thought you'd stay. And it'll make you pay a price you never thought you'd pay. A piddly little sin, a a Babylonian garment and a wedge of gold and a couple shekels of silver. Come on. And it cost him severely. Our sin affects more than just us. David's sin affected more than just him and Bathsheba. It affected Bathsheba's grandparents and it affected uh, David's household, his concubines. These were women who had beating hearts and emotions and dreams. And David's sin completely ravished them. And man, when I think of pastors that I know who have fallen, I am just so sobered to keep short accounts of my life because I want to finish strong. We had an elders retreat in Corvallis uh, a few months after my high school pastor, uh, who then became the college pastor, he ran away from the Lord and ran away from his wife and we pled with him with tears to come back and, and he would not come back and he justified all of his sin. And we had an elders meeting and we said, we need to make a list of the cost that our sin will cost us. You know, for us as pastors, it'll cost us the, you know, the respect of the congregation and the hearts of a congregation. And really, we put a black flag or a black name on Jesus to a whole community. And then it goes so far as to we lose our families and our children. And my pastor who married Lindsay and I walked away from Christ and his children don't even call him dad anymore. And we used to read Bible stories with them to their kids. And, and it costs us more than we ever thought it would cost us. And I know that David never considered that. And so I ask you tonight, is that sin that you're struggling with tonight, or that, those sins, is it worth it? Is it worth your wife? Is it worth your husband? Is it worth your children? Is it worth your community? Is it worth quenching what God wants to do in this church? There's a battle going on and victory is on the horizon and perhaps your sin or my sin will will cause us to lose the battle. 
Perhaps the Lord wants to bring a revival to Prineville through us. But perhaps there's one just sin that's being practiced in our midst that's unrepented of. And the Lord says, I'm not going to move until that's dealt with. There's sin in the camp. Man, may we come running to the throne of grace and lay it down before the Lord and say, Lord, I want to be cleansed. I don't want to pay that cost. It's not worth it. I want to be obedient to you. And I just ask you, is that sin worth it? Is that pleasure worth it? Is it worth not just getting a password for your internet connection so that you don't stumble in that area anymore? Let's just, let's just get a, a password on there and, and then I won't ever fall in that area again. It's that simple. Or, or let's just, you know, clean out the liquor cabinet, you know, or let's flush that bag of that stuff down the toilet or burn the magazines. Get rid of it. My family is worth it. My friends are worth it. My extended family It's worth it. Are we quenching it? You know, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18, verse 6 through 9, he says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, speaking of children, it'd be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. And then he says this, woe, to the world because of offenses for offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offenses come. You know, when I was a little kid, my first exposure to pornography was just riding my horse out on the ranch. And we had this massive ranch with a massive dump, if you will, in this, just a dump, you know, I would take all our garbage and we had hired men and we had you know tons and tons of families living out to work this ranch and so I don't know whose it was but we used to go my cousins and I would ride our horses or our motorcycles up to this dump and we'd find cool stuff you know shiny marbles and other cool stuff that you find in a dump I mean do I need to explain that but um first exposure to pornography is just like here's a shiny marble oh here's this holy cow you know And I remember riding our horses back home, like, we got to take a shower, you know, and being like, my mom always said that if you see pornography, it'll all be in your mind for the rest of your life. My mom said that too, you know, and we're like riding, you know, you know, offenses are going to come. We're going to be exposed to sin. I'm going to ride my horse out in the woods. Yeah. Holy cow. You know, if there's ever a place you're not going to fall into sin, it's probably there, you know. But woe to the man that brings the offenses. You know, and we kind of be like with our kids. Yeah, I can watch this movie in the house and Billy's walking by and it's okay. Someday he's going to see that anyways. Yeah, offenses are going to come. But woe to the one that brings them. And then right after that, Jesus says, If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life, lame or maimed, rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life with one eye, rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. And so, man, Jesus isn't advocating self-mutilation here. Or, you know, we would all just be like a stump coming to church on Sunday. You know, like they're dragging, just place me up on that pew and tipping over during the service. (laughs) 
had a lot of sin in my life, you know. But what he's saying is take drastic measures to get rid of sin. Take drastic measures. It's going to cost you. It could cost you eternity or it could cost you your household or your family. Get rid of it. It's painful. It's painful to say to your wife, I struggle in that area. Could you put a password on the TV and on the internet? I don't want that. I'll tell you, your wife wants you to come and say, hey, let's put up measures in the house so that I can be yours and you can be mine and nobody else. That's what we want, you know? Um, it, but it's painful. It's painful to be like, I can't have the computer in this room anymore. It's got to be out in the open area now. Or it's painful to, to be like, you know what? I've been, I have a history of, of, of alcoholism and I just struggle and I got to get rid of it. It's painful, but throw it away. Whatever it is, take those drastic measures to get rid of sin. You know, sin isn't bad because God says it's bad. God says that sin is bad because it destroys lives and it ruins homes and it kills people and it, and it ends up in, in eternal uh, you know, in an eternal fire, if you stay in that and if you wallow in that. And so, you know, I, I forgive me for going that direction, you know, in verse three, you know, concubines and hey, let's go over here, you know, but I just was thinking of these concubines and how the whole reason that they were treated like that up on that rooftop by Absalom was because of chapter 11 and David's sin. And even before that, you know, the multiple wives thing and the concubine thing. I mean, it, it hurt people. It hurt people. Our sin affects more than just us. And don't worry, we're going to cruise through the rest of chapter 20 here. It's actually a pretty good chapter. Uh, so Second Samuel 20, verses 4 and 5. And the king said to Amasa, Assemble the men of Judah for me within three days, and be present here yourself. So Amasa went to assemble the men of Judah, but he delayed longer than he than the set time which David had, excuse me, appointed him. So Amasa is Joab's cousin. You know, Joab being the the commander of David's army. Uh, so Amasa is Joab's cousin, and both of them are nephews of David. Second uh, Samuel seventeen twenty five and First Chronicles two thirteen through seventeen tell us the family tree there. Um, but Amasa was the captain of Absalom's army when Absalom was fighting against his dad, David. And so it's interesting just to see, you know, David is merciful. What, he's a picture of Jesus. He's merciful to Amasa and he allows him to, uh, even have a part in his army now. And so, um, and, and it says that back in, um, when Absalom was using Amasa, he said he put Amasa there rather than Joab. And now David is using Amasa rather than Joab because Joab has, had been known to be a harsh guy. And so he gives Amasa this task and he says, be back here with the men of Judah, the army of Judah within three days. And, um, and yet he was tardy. He didn't make it back in time. And so in verse six, so David said to Abishai, now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him lest he find for himself fortified cities and escape us. So here's Abishai, a mighty man who will come to David's aid and save his life uh, later on in chapter 21. And uh, so Abishai gets the task to go after Sheba now. 
And Joab's men in verse 7 with the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men, the, the Cherethites and the Pelethites were kind of like the musketeers. You know, they were David's um, personal bodyguard type guys. And Joab led these guys and they went out to Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. And when they were at the large stone, you guys have um, landmarks like that around Prineville, don't we? We, we have landmarks like that around Prineville, don't we? <laughs> The large stone outside of Prineville. A massa came before them. Now Joab, there at the large stone, Joab was dressed in battle armor, looking pretty cool, I'm sure. And on his belt, uh, with a sword fastened in its sheath at his hips. And as he was going forward, it fell out. And then Joab said to Amasa, are you in health, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. And so Joab being, you know, one of those musketeers guys that's got all the cool moves with the sword, he puts it on his foot, kicks it up, grabs it, you know. Well, he did this cool trick, you know, where he's got the sword and, oh, silly me. And he kind of stumbles and shing, you know, and like drops the sword. Total accident, I'm sure. And, and Josephus, it's interesting, an Israeli historian from like the first century you know, his take on it was that's totally purposeful, a way to, to approach Amasa with his sword out. And so it's kind of Green Beret-ish, you know, like gets his sword out and, and is able to be like, oh, sorry, you know, picks it up and goes to greet Amasa, grabs him by the beard to kiss him, a totally normal greeting of the time. Simply platonic, I think would be the word. And um, Amasa did not notice the sword that was in Joab's hand. It was just totally casual, drop the sword. Hey, how are you? Are you doing well? Are you in good health? And he didn't notice the sword, just totally nonchalantly grabbed it. And he struck him with it in the stomach. Plug your ears, this is the PG-13 version. Um, and his entrails poured out on the ground, and he did not strike him again. Thus he died. Uh, the King James Version, uh, which is always much more exciting says, um, so he smote him therewith in the fifth rib, you know, and uh, kind of just, he knew what he was doing. Joab was a skilled Green Beret type soldier, special forces guy, and he didn't need to strike him again. It was one fatal wound, and thus he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. And so he's very, uh, very a harsh person, and he killed uh, Amasa in the same way that he killed Abner. If you remember clear back when he killed Abner, um, he, he did it with a greeting. You know, he went, there was a little gate and he went up to him and was just like, how are you doing? <laughs> so there's those types of people, you know, when they greet you, you just kind of keep your distance. Like, hey, air high five, you know, <laughs> stay away from me. And, um, and uh, just a harsh uh, harsh guy. And, and uh, David was never too thrilled with Joab's destructive ways of doing things. You know, he's just killing people left and right. He's killed Abner uh, when David didn't want him to kill Abner. He killed David's son Absalom with three spears through the heart when David said, deal kindly with him, bring him back to me. And now here he kills Amasa when he wasn't supposed to. And so when David's on his deathbed and he's giving Solomon kind of his last instructions, 
He says, moreover, you know, this is in 1 Kings 2 verse 5. He says, moreover, Solomon, you know also what Joab, the son of Zariah, did to me and what he did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel, to Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed. And he shed the blood of war in peacetime and put the blood of war on his belt that was around his waist and on his sandals that were on his feet. Therefore, do according to your wisdom and do not let his gray hair go down to the grave in peace. And, um, and so Joab had great potential, but he was a really a cold-blooded murderer. And so David says, don't let him go down in peace um, because of Amasa, who we just read about. And, um, <clears throat> and so, meanwhile, one of Joab's men, verse 11, stood near Amasa and said, whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, follow Joab. But Amasa wallowed in his blood in the middle of the highway. And when the men saw that all the people stood still, he moved Amasa from the highway to the field and threw a garment over him. And when he saw that everyone who came upon him halted. And so you can imagine, you know, Amasa was a military leader, a general who David sent to get the men of Judah. And he had all the men of Judah with him and he was slaughtered in front of them. And, and you know, the line was long, I'm sure. And so they're still walking on the road, you know, and all of a sudden there's their general in the middle of the road in the nastiness of his death, you know. And so they'd stop, you know, apparently they didn't get the memo that, uh, Joab was now in charge because they just like froze and they're like, what are we supposed to do? And so a guy drug the body off, put a blanket over it so that people could be on the way to go get Sheba. And uh, he went, verse 14, through all the tribes of Israel to Abel and Beth Macha and all the Burites. So they were gathered together and also went after Sheba. Then they came and besieged Sheba in Abel of Beth Makkah, and they cast up a siege mound against the city, and it stood by the rampart. And all the people who were with Joab battered the wall to throw it down. So if you know your map of Israel Israel at all, which I'm sure every one of you do, um, so here's Israel. Right about in the middle is Jerusalem, which is where most of the stuff has taken place. And Joab is now at Abel which is way northern Israel by Dan. And it's at the mouth of the Jordan River. And if you look on a map, I mean, these guys traveled a long ways to go get this rebel Sheba. And so once they get there, it's, it's uh, a walled city. And so they build ramparts and they get battering rams and they start trying to tear down this city. And uh, a wise woman cried out, verse 16, from the city, Hear, hear, please say to Joab, come nearby that I, might, that I may speak with you. And when he had come near to her, the woman said, are you Joab? And he answered, I am. And then she said to him, hear the words of your maidservant. And he answered, I'm listening. And so she spoke saying, they used to talk in former times saying, they shall surely seek guidance at Abel. And so they would end disputes. And so um, well, let's just read one more verse. I'm among the peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city and a mother in Israel. Why would you swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? And so what you get from this conversation is that Sheba, being the coward that he is, went and hid amongst the city and hid behind people as his shield. They didn't even know 
why Joab was battering the city down. And, and this wise old woman said, what, what are you doing? You know, don't you know that Abel is, is a fantastic city? You know, in verse uh, 18, there's a, there's a saying out there that whenever there was a problem, you'd come to Abel to get uh, wise counsel. And so, you know, and, and I'm just a, a cute old lady, you know, and uh, I'm the future of Israel. No, I don't, maybe not that, but, you know, my family, there's great people here that are the future of Israel. And so why would you destroy this town? What's going on? And Joab answered and said, far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. I don't know if you guys get that, but it's kind of a joke, you know. Of course Joab would swallow up and destroy, you know, Amasa. He just slaughtered Amasa. He's killed uh, those other two guys, you know, with those weird Old Testament names. Um, all day long I've been like, you got to remember that name, dude. You got to remember that name. Absalom and Abner. Woo! Props to you, Lord. Um, and so he said, far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. That's not so. But a man from the mountains of Ephraim, Sheba, the son of Bichri by name, has raised his hand against the king, against David. Deliver him only, and I will depart from the city. So the woman said to Joab, watch, his head will be thrown to you over the wall. Jeez, old lady. <laughs> We just wanted to arrest him, but, you know, no, actually Joab was probably like, I like this lady, you know, are you single? You know, uh, he liked her style and, uh, so watch his head will be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman in her wisdom, you notice that, you know, Joab kind of does have a thing for older women. You remember when he deceived, uh, I didn't mean it like that. He deceived King David to let Absalom come back into the city by using an old wise woman to play a trick on David. And that's how Absalom got back in. So, you know, that's what happened there. Um, then the woman and all of her wisdom went to all the people and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab and said, heads up. <laughs> it was funnier when the pastor I was listening to said it. And then he blew a trumpet and they withdrew from the city, every man to his tent. And so Joab returned to the king at Jerusalem and Joab was over all the army of Israel. And so from verse 23 through 26, we basically have um, David's cabinet laid out. His leaders are laid out. And there's also a list in chapter 8 of Second Samuel of his cabinet, but it's different in a couple of ways. Um, <clears throat> Benaiah, who we're going to read about later, one of the mighty men of battle, the son of Joida, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites. So Benaiah was the chief musketeer, if you will. Then Adoram was in charge of the revenue. And so this is a new office that's not mentioned in chapter 8. Um, basically, Adoram was the IRS agent of, of the town, he was, or of the nation. He'd make sure everyone was paying their taxes. But before chapter 11, you don't see that. Um, they would get all of their money that they needed through plundering in these battles that, that were going on. Yet they'd been through so much civil war 
that uh, the nation was in a bit of debt, and so a tax was, was given. Uh, Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, I suppose, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder or the historian. Shiva was the scribe. Zadok and Abiathar were the priests. And Ira the Jairite was a chief minister under David. Now, Ira is also new because before in chapter 8, it was David's sons were the chief ministers. But there's been so much corruption in David's house since chapter 11 that no longer, you know, uh, are these sons the chief ministers. But Ira has taken that place. And so, um, so that's the end of the chapter. But remember the theme. Obedience. And man, it's just good to just think about that for a minute and meditate it. Obedience brings blessing. Can you remember that? Obedience brings blessing. And the Lord's heart is, oh, if we would just obey. If we would just obey. There's such blessing there for us. But disobedience brings judgment. A man reaps what he sows. Romans chapter 2, verse 4 through 10 says, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, his forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you're treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there's indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also for the Greek. Man, just to realize that our disobedience not only leads to judgment, but it affects those that are around us, those that we love. It affects everything really in our midst. And our sin can bring death to those people and to those things. In fact, Romans 6.23, we all know it. The wages of our sin is death. But you know what, guys? The plus side of all of this is that the gift of God is eternal life. And man, maybe you could just look, you could think through your life and in your past and all of the ways that your sin or that choice You dated that non-Christian guy or that non-Christian girl and it got you here. Or Or you slept with that girl, you slept with that guy and it got you here. And it's ruined even my child's life from that, you know. Or you decided to to do this or to do that and you know what it is. And you can just think about, man, there's a really like a, a root system of how my disobedient act has affected my life. And now I'm... I'm wallowing in my, the, the consequences of my sin. It's pleasurable for a season and it seems so good and feels so right. But the consequences, they're not worth it. Or it's hurt so many people so badly. It's my favorite ringtone, actually. <laughs> I 
But you know what? During worship, I just felt like the Lord saying, Rory, just don't leave it at your sin destroys everyone you love and that's it. You know? love you. But, you know, the Lord is telling me, don't just leave it at that, you know. His mercies are new every morning, and he restores the years that the locusts have eaten. And I just think of what Jesus says in Revelations, behold, I make all things new. I make all things new. And so if your life has that tornado trail behind it, don't be discouraged. He makes all things new. And there's a fresh start for you today if you'll just cry out. He'll remember your sin no more as far as the east is from the west. And yes, there's consequences of our sin and and it's hard. But he wants to make all things new. And so just run to Jesus, man. Don't be discouraged by that. What a warning for us for future sins to flee from those things. Stuart, you want to come on up? Let's pray. Lord, we are just sobered as we read David's life. And, and we want the book to just continue, like chapters 1 through 10. We, we just want to see victory. And, and, and yet the sin and the disobedience just brought such havoc upon David's family and, and his children and the nation. And Lord, we just know that that our lives have that same trail behind us in all these different ways. And Lord, I just pray that tonight you just be here in the room and that you just focus our hearts on you and you just show us your deep love. How incredible that you would say to us, behold, I make all things new. Come and let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. And if you're here today, I just want to give you the opportunity to have your sins washed away and be as, just made as white as snow. And I just want you know, to give you the opportunity today that though you have a tornado destruction path behind you, that the Lord wants to reseed that and restore the years that the locusts have eaten and bring peace and health and new life. And if that's you today, I just just say, lift your hand up and I'll pray for you. The Lord sees you. The Lord sees you. Today, just as you lift your hand, just know right now, you're putting your trust in Jesus and his blood is covering all of your sins that you've ever committed. He remembers them no more. You're as white as snow. Your garments are white tonight. And he wants to do a new work in you of cleansing you and purifying you and and just making you a new creation. Today, you're a new creation. Anybody else? Just Rory, will you pray for me? I'll pray for you guys in just a minute. I just want to give an opportunity for us to respond to God's word tonight. You just want to say, you know what? I'm tired of the life of disobedience always ending in 
destruction and judgment and disease and heartache and fights and shame and embarrassment. I'm done with that. Lord sees you. Anybody else? I'm done with that. I want a new, fresh start. Lord sees your hands tonight. And would you just let him and allow him to cleanse you tonight, to give you a new start. He's pulling you up from the the miry quicksand clay and he's setting your feet upon a rock tonight. He's putting a new song in your heart and many are going to see it and they're going to fear the Lord. Anybody else, man, you know that there's stuff going on that it's going to ruin your family and it's just not worth it. Just lift your hand up and say, Lord, I give it up. I give it to you. Rory, pray for me. I need strength and I want cleansing to happen in me. Lord sees you. The cycle can end tonight. Anybody else? Lord, just, you know the hearts in this room and You know the struggles. You know the the temptations that are just sucking us in, Lord. But Lord, you make the way of escape, Lord. Lord, I just pray that you would reason with hearts here, Lord. If anyone hasn't given it up to you, that you'd help them to do so, Lord. I just... I want to ask you to be bold tonight. If you've lifted up your hand that during this song that you would just stand and just there's no shame here. None of of us is better than another. But if that's you and you lifted your hand, I just want to ask you to stand and and we're going to have people come and pray for you. The worst thing would be for just Rory to see you lift your hand and you leave and no one knew and no one's praying for you during the week and you're just out there on your own and we never see you again or... You know, we, we're a family here and we just want to surround you and love you and pray for you and support you. And so during this last song, maybe you haven't lifted your hands yet and, and you just want to stand and just say, I am done destroying my family and I don't want to destroy my family. You can just stand and we'll come and pray for you. And 